for today. It's Exodus 17, verses 8 to 16. Uh, Exodus 17, 8 to 16. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make it sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us today through your word, your word that is powerful, and we pray that your powerful word would create in us new and softened hearts that are alive to you and love you. Father, we pray that as your word is preached, it would not return empty, but it would do all that you have intended it for us. And we pray that it would build us up in Christ Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen. Well, for uh, whatever reason, this summer, I've crashed a lot more on my mountain bike. <laughs> it's never been anything serious, but it's like as soon as one scab falls off, another one is starting to form. Now, one unexpected advantage of this is that when my kids fall on a hike or bike ride, and if you have kids, you know what this is like. They're kind of teetering on that line between crying and sucking it up or shrugging it off. And what I've learned is I can do is I can kind of pull them in close and show them my arm or my knee and say, look, you've got an owie just like daddy. And it is surprising how much that cheers them up to know their dad has the same wound they do. Uh, just the other day, Luke, our youngest, he came up to me and he lifted up his elbow and proudly said, look, I've got an owie just like you. Well, this summer, it also seems that we've been finding ourselves talking a lot more about heaven around the dinner table. And our kids have tons of questions, like, will Wyatt, our dog, be in heaven? <laughs> How old will I be? Will I look the same? But inevitably, one of our kids will perk up and say, I know something about heaven. We don't get owies there. And those words, shouted with a smile make me long all the more for that day. Because they're just thinking of the scabs that are on their knees and their elbows. But I'm thinking of the wounds that run deeper. Ones, and you don't understand this as a kid, wounds that you cannot see, but the pain they inflict on your heart every day reminds you they're still there. And the kids don't understand that the older you get, you might not get as many wounds that need Band-Aids, unless you're me, <laughs> but a lot of things still hurt, and Band-Aids can't fix them. We're working our way through the book of Exodus in this series that we've called 
uh, three gifts. Looking at the three gifts that God gives his people. And the first gift, which is the first chunk of the book, is the gift of redemption. And redemption isn't just being freed from slavery, but it's actually being redeemed from everything that threatens to hurt God's people. God doesn't do a partial redemption, but a full redemption. He doesn't advertise, oh, all-inclusive redemption, only to read the fine print and realize the things that I want the most are overpriced add-ons that you have to pay dearly for. No, God does free, full, complete redemption. A redemption so great that you never will need a Band-Aid again when his work is complete. And simply what I want you to remember is this. You won't need Band-Aids in heaven. You won't need Band-Aids in heaven. We're going to look at our passage just under two headings. First, the fight, and then second, the goal. Now, if you're a little bit confused because you were here last week and don't remember me preaching the first part of Exodus 17, uh, don't be confused. I skipped that section uh, because back in Easter, I actually preached the first part of Exodus 17 for our Easter passage. It's a great passage, and I would encourage you. I actually thought about preaching again because I love it so much, but it felt a little too soon. But you can go and listen to that message if you didn't hear it then because it, it really fits so well with everything we've been talking about. Uh, also, just so you know, all of the sermons are on the Jordan Valley Church podcast, which probably anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts, just search Jordan Valley Church and you can get it there as well, so you'll never uh, miss one of them. Well, so God, in the previous section, miraculously provided water from the rock. And if you remember, the Israelites are traveling through the desert, and water is one of the most important things that they need. And so now they have fresh water, and they're probably busy filling up all their water skins, resting a little bit before they head out on the next leg of their journey. But when you're kind of traveling through wild territory, one of the dangers of staying in one place too long is you might run into some pirates or raiders or, or bandits or outlaws. And maybe some Amalekite scouts saw this big caravan of people wandering through the deserts, women and children, and lots of animals, and they think, oh, this is an easy target. And up to this point, Israel hasn't had to fight. God did all the fighting for them. They just got to watch back. And interestingly, in our passage, there is no mention of Israel worrying or complaining, which they do for basically every other thing they run into in the desert. Maybe they just thought, oh, God's got this one. I wonder what plague he'll use to pulverize these guys. Anyone want to take some bets on how we'll take care of them? So Moses' instructions are a bit surprising. Choose some of our men to go out and fight the Amalekites. Wait, we're, we're going to have to fight them? The first time you go to a war, you're extra nervous. I mean, it's all the more so for the Israelites. They've never been to war. I remember my first time going over to Iraq. And we took comfort in those guys who had been there before. They knew what it was like. They gave you tips. They told you what things will be like. They, they gave just a, a confidence in knowing, okay, we'll get through this. But the Israelites don't have any veterans. Their entire army is completely green. And Joshua, who will become Moses' successor, is now tasked with mustering an army and going out and fighting some pirates who are way better equipped and way better skilled at these types of endeavors. And then Moses says, Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, when you're facing an army that is superior to you, you can see them gathering on the horizon and they're getting ready to raid you. 
the last thing you want to hear is, I'll take care of it tomorrow. Hey, you call 911. Hey, someone's breaking into my house. Thank you for letting us know. We'll send someone out tomorrow. No, but that word should clue us in to what the story is really about. That even though the Israelites are going to have to do something new, go out and fight, this battle will be just as much God's work as all the previous things they've witnessed. That use of the word tomorrow is something that actually we've seen repeated over and over in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 8, when Moses is announcing the plague of flies, he says in verse 23, this sign will occur tomorrow. In the plague upon the livestock, God says in 9 verse 5, tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And as you work through the plagues, you start to see that tomorrow isn't just letting you know some time passed. It's kind of like a push notification on your phone. Get ready. God is going to do something big. Be on the lookout tomorrow. And though Israel is playing a more active role, they've got to go into battle. We're clued into the fact by these details and Moses taking the staff and Moses going up on the hill that this is just another example of God's work to redeem his people. So the night passes. A devil and Israelites slept very well. Joshua is trying to get together his makeshift army. They're preparing. They're saying goodbye to their family, hugging their wife and their kids. They're not sure if they're going to see them again. They're nervous. The whole camp is, you know, just sort of humming with the nervousness and, and the preparation. Time, if you've ever had to stay up all night, time goes way slower at night than during the day. And there's a contrast here. Because for us, tomorrow is often such a source of worry. We worry about tomorrow. We lose sleep about what might happen tomorrow. We fear what bad news tomorrow might bring. But contrast that with what we see through Exodus. For God, tomorrow is the day of his redemption. Consider Psalm 130, verse 5 to 6. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. How do you turn tomorrow from a source of worry into an anchor of hope? What do you do when you're worried what tomorrow will bring? When you wonder, why am I having to wait another day and God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it? And it centers around trusting in God's promises. When you see an army gathering on the horizon and God says, we'll take care of it tomorrow. And those 12 hours seem like 12 years because you're not sure what's going to happen. God's promises are your protection. God's promises are what pierce through the darkness to hold you when you're waiting for him to show up. During those long nights of waiting, those months of waiting, those years of waiting, what is it that you're meditating on? The things that could happen, what you fear might happen, why nothing has changed. Or as much as your mind wants to drift to all those worries about tomorrow, do you make God's promises the anchor of your soul that keeps you from drifting into those waters of worry. God's promises are the most stable, sure thing that you have. 
They are more steady than the chair you're sitting on. And when you let God's promises define your reality, instead of what your eyes see and your ears hear that is causing you so much worry, but when you say, what is more true than that is what God has spoken, even if tomorrow is a long ways out, you know how it ends because God's promises tell you God will make all things right. That is what is most true in this world. For Christians, tomorrow is not a source of worry, but it is that day that we look forward to when we don't need any more band-aids. And so the battle ensues, and something interesting happens. Moses is up on the hill where he can see it all play out, and whenever his hands are raised up, the, Amalek, or the Israelites get the upper hand in the battle. But as soon as his hands go down, the Amalekites start to get the upper hand in the battle. And what is striking about this fight is that we don't get any details of the battle. There's no cool stories about you know, soldiers duking it out and all these cool action scenes. It's kind of like when you read the Lord of the Rings trilogy after watching all the movies, which is how I did it, right? And you watch the movies and there's all these great fight scenes. Say, man, this is going to be an awesome book. And you read the book and the fight's like three pages. And then Tolkien spends like 40 pages to describe the woods and the grass. It's totally different from what you would expect. And the focus isn't between the armies that are fighting below, but all what is happening on the hilltop. How good can this, how well can this old guy named Moses keep his shaking hands up in the air? The most important thing in winning this battle isn't the tactics or the strategies or the weapons they have, but how well Moses can keep his hand in the air. And Moses' hands are getting tired. You really want time to slow down? Try holding your hands up in the air for 10 minutes and it'll feel like an hour. And his hands get tired. He's got to bring them down. But you can imagine the stress that he feels because as soon as they kind of go down, he can watch the course of the fight and, and suddenly the Israelites are, are, are on the losing end. He's like, I can't keep my hands up forever, but when I bring them down, my people suffer. And so Aaron and her roll a stone over for Moses to sit on so he doesn't have to stand the whole time. And then they stand on each side of him, holding his arms up. And with their help, his hands remain steady till sunset. And as the last rays of sun go over the horizon, the Amalekites retreat. Israel won. Now, so many folks have wrestled with what to make of this story. I remember it as a kid, just being amazed by it. Sometimes people wonder, was Moses praying? This was a common a posture for prayer back then, but it doesn't seem like that's exactly what's going on. It never mentions the word prayer. Uh, prayer is not mentioned is it anywhere, and Moses could have prayed with his hands down. Instead, it seems to be the focus is simply on how high are Moses' hands. What we see here is this interplay between God's work and Moses' faithfulness. From a military standpoint, how high Moses' hands are in the air is about as uh, significant or as effective as giving a sword to a seal. But God uses that act of faithfulness, keeping your hands up, to win the battle. And then what's interesting, if you notice there, he even attributes it to Joshua. Joshua overcame the Amalekites with the sword. The army of Israel didn't win because of how strong they were. We see how green and new of an army they were because as soon as Moses puts his hands down, they start losing. They can't fight on their own. 
But God also doesn't say, you guys just step aside, let the professional go to work, right? I've got, I know how to do the plagues. No, he says, you guys need to step out on that battlefield. And when you do that in faith, I'm going to multiply your meager efforts to bring a victory. And there's a similar principle for us today. God uses your little steps of faith that maybe seem as insignificant as raising your hands in the middle of a war to do what is beyond what you can imagine. It's so easy for us to fall to kind of one of two errors. First, we think, oh, well, God's in charge. He does it all. So why do I even bother? I'm just going to sit back and watch. God invites you to participate. The way that you show your faith is often through these little actions that show you trust that he is the one that is in charge. He invites you to show up on the field, not sit on the sidelines. The other error we can fall into is we don't trust God to do the work. We trust him, maybe he's powerful enough, but he probably doesn't want to help me. And so you take things into your own hands. You trust too much in swords and chariots, or in our days, maybe money and connections and lawyers or whatever it might be. And when you realize you're outmatched and things aren't going your way, you maybe freak out. You double down on your efforts. You do anything but trust and rest that God is the one that will do the heavy lifting. I can have all the money in the world and it will do nothing in God's presence if he doesn't want it to happen. And I can have two pennies. And God can use that to do far more than the richest person could ever do. And there's a lot of places that we can apply this in our life, but one of the key ones from our passage I don't want to miss, one of the things that becomes clear as you trace Israel's journey to the promised land and into the promised land is that God shows them that worship is Israel's warfare. Best example probably is when Joshua fights the battle of Jericho. If you grew up in the church, you know the the song, The way they conquer that city is by having a worship service that marches around the walls. And this passage is like a small preview of that. Moses' worship is what wins the battle. This isn't the best kind of analogy, but I think it fits. You can even see it in his posture, which this is a bit foreign to Presbyterians, to do this in worship, but I know there are some Christians that sometimes raise their hands in worship. And we can picture Moses doing that. And it's the same for us. Where is the place that God so often uses our meager efforts to accomplish beyond what we would imagine? It's through our worship. That primarily especially when Christians gather together to worship. What happens here is one of the most significant ways in which God forwards his mission in the world. It's why the local church is where the action is. It's why if you want to see God at work, there's no better place to be than in local churches around this globe because the church is God's conduit of his power into the world. Now, today people think of worship kind of very self-centeredly. What do I get out of it? How did I feel? How did I get fed today? There's an aspect of that in worship. But if your attitude about worship is primarily what I get out of it, you miss one of the most important aspects of it. It is actually where God is using your feeble efforts, your worship, to do more than you can ask or imagine in the world. And sometimes... 
It's regardless of your feelings in it. I mean, how do you think Moses felt when he was holding his hands up for hours? It's like, when is this worship service going to end? <laughs> I can't handle it anymore. And yet God used that, even when it hurt, even when he needed others to help carry his load. It's interesting, we get a little preview here, Moses inviting others to help him, of what we're going to look at in the next chapter. God uses that small act of faithfulness to conquer an army. And do you want to know what will make one of the biggest differences in our communities and our nation? It is Christians gathering to worship the true king and watching God work through that. This is a little bit counterintuitive, but I would argue making it more personal. The most effective thing that you can do in the face of worry, difficulty, danger, anger is often just kind of an intense form of fear, and wounds, the best thing that you can do is to gather for worship. That when you're stressed, worship. When you're worried about tomorrow, worship. That if worries and frustrations and anxieties of life seem to have the upper hand, maybe you need to raise your hands in worship. Worship has not been a big enough part of your life. Maybe you can put it another way. You're worshiping the wrong things. Your stress, your worry is playing such a big part in your life because you're spending all kinds of time worshiping those things that are on the horizon. Even if it's what you fear, you're worshiping them by how much time you're thinking about them, how much you're directing your life around them. What is threatening the things that you want so much and you're worried more about that than God. I was reading uh, the Puritan John Flavel earlier this week. He wrote, The strength of our love of the things of the world is directly proportional to the strength of our fear. The more we are in love with the things of this world, the more we're going to fear. The way to decrease your fear is to spend time, more time worshiping the God who calls us to be still and know that He's God. Not us, not the things we're afraid of, not the rulers of this world. Worship is where you're reminded that God is the one who is fighting the battles. He is the one that makes wars cease. This leads us into our second point. God gives one more instruction at the end of it. Write this down. I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Now these sections can make us feel a little bit uncomfortable because it plays into some of the reasons why people struggle with the Old Testament. God is so violent. But why does God make this promise? To essentially wipe out an entire people? Because he's leading his people into a world where verse 8 will never happen again. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites. Uh, Psalm 46 is such a great passage. I've taken many of you to it in times of worry. Where it says of God, He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. The reason why God is engaged in warfare is to destroy the weapons of war and make war cease throughout the world. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear so that there will be no more fighting, no more threats, no more abuse, no more oppressors, no more murder. God is taking his world 
is people into a world where we don't need any more Band-Aids. There is such a thing as evil in this world. You don't have to live very long to know it. You live in much of the rest of the world and you are experience it on a daily basis, the violence that blankets our globe. And it becomes very clear that evil is not going to leave our world without it putting up a fight and trying to do as much damage as it can. And that is what God is engaged in, quarantining evil. And this passage can make us feel uncomfortable about how he's going to do this, but actually what he's doing is, is giving us a solution to what everybody in our world wants, a world without hurt. And whether you know, you're liberal or conservative or wherever you are, everybody is trying to figure out how do we do that? We see it today. Right? Even as systems of justice fail in our world, people come up with their own systems of justice, whether it's taking the gun and taking you know, the law into your own hands, whether it's canceling people, blotting out their names from the history books or Facebook feeds or whatever, or looking at that opposing political party and saying, they're the ones that are ruining our country, we just need to blot their names out from the, the ballots. Everybody, one way or another, is involved in trying to blot certain people out because they think that will make this place better. But history shows us over and over again that never works. Right? You can get rid of all the people that you think are the problem, and before long, those same problems will start sprouting up again, and there will be a new group that you have to hate. Because as Schultz and Eitzen said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. With everything going on in our, our country these days, who is standing up and saying, the problem is us? Because that's what Christianity says. The problem is us. It is me. It is the sin in my own heart that in the end, I am no different than you. If you look throughout Scripture, there's two ways in which this idea of being blotted out is used. Psalm 34, 16 but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. It's the same use in our passage. God promises that one day in the end, those people who are controlled by evil will be blotted out so that evil will never have any influence in the new heavens and new earth. But then Isaiah 43, 25. God says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and remembers your sins no more. The other way that God blots things out is he blots out the sins in your own life, the evil in your own life, so that you can be made clean. The real issue in our world isn't getting rid of certain people. It's getting rid of the sin that affects all people. It's why the, Paul writes in Ephesians 6, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, and the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's why the Christians, it's why Christians, we worship not the sword, 
or the ballot or the laws we want to get passed. That's why true worship of God is the Christian's warfare. Prayer is our arsenal. And how does God blot out our sins? Isaiah 53, 7. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. Describing someone whose life was blotted out. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. The way that God blots out your sins so that you can be free is by blotting out the life of Jesus who carried your sins. That Jesus, in one sense, faces the same fate of the Amalekites. His life was blotted out. So that God could purify a people who would live in a world where we never have to worry about Band-Aids again. Friends, your sins will be blotted out one way or another. They will be dealt with. And the question is, will you go down with them because you refuse to acknowledge Christ's lordship in your life and think I can handle it on my own or my sins aren't that bad? You hold on to them, you'll be blotted out with them. Or will you give your sins to Jesus and let him take them to the cross and there they will be blotted out, never to return again? There are no other options. So then finally, Moses builds an altar to remember what happened, God's promise to wipe out the Amalekites. Now it's interesting because if you read through Israel's history, you realize that Israel doesn't need a monument to remember the Amalekites because the Amalekites won't let them forget, forget them. They keep terrorizing them. They keep you know, raiding them and attacking them. Israel's not going to forget the Amalekites. They're one of their chief enemies. So you wonder, why did God have them build up this altar here? Well, maybe, on one hand, it wasn't so much so that they would look back to when the Amalekites aren't there, but that they would look forward to that day when that will be all that's left of the Amalekites, that memorial. Because God's promises are what is ultimately true. And that altar might get worn down and dusty, but it will remind them, one day you'll need this altar to remember the Amalekites because that is all that's left of those who do evil. Brothers and sisters, what wounds are you carrying? What hurts aren't healing in your heart? When my kids are on that precipice between crying and sucking it up, I wrap them in my arms and pull them close and say, look, just like daddy. And friends, Jesus holds his wounded hands to your wounds. He puts his wounds on full display, his broken body, his shed blood, to show you in your suffering and in your pain and when you feel broken, that is where he is. That is where he meets you. But his wounds are no longer memories of his pain on the cross, but testaments to God's faithfulness through the deepest suffering. His wounds have been transformed 
into marks of praise. And that's your hope. One day, your wounds won't need Band-Aids. They're not going to fully disappear. You'll always see the marks, the scars. But one day, they'll be transformed into beautiful evidences of God's faithfulness, even through the darkest hours. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to hold so tightly to your promises, to know that the deepest wounds that are inflicted upon us, the deepest heartbreaks, the things that hurt so much they might even take our life, are not as true as your promises to make us new, to bind up our wounds, to heal our hearts, and that one day the things that so deeply hurt us will become memorials to your faithfulness that far outlasted the hurt, that you transformed our mourning into dancing. Father, help us to believe that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.